you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. Sozo Church. My wife Patty and I uh, are part of the uh, pastoral team here at Sozo, part of the um, wonderful team that tries to serve you the best we can from week to week. Uh, and I had the awesome privilege of actually uh, pastoring as in a lead role the Rock of Ages part of this merge. And uh, it's been so well merged that I don't even think in terms of of merge anymore. It's all just one big happy Sozo family. Amen to that? All right. I'm going to uh, try to see if my technology works here. And um, see if I can find this quickly enough. You can turn in your Bibles, actually, to Acts chapter 15. We're going to be there. We're not. You'll notice we didn't have uh, the, the famous uh, John introduction video that Mark wrote and, taught and, and Jay uh, voiced for us, uh, because we're not going to be in John today. We're going to be in, in Acts chapter 15, uh, particularly verses 14 through about 16, 17. We are going to read the whole passage here in a minute. Um, if I can get there without taking like a thousand minutes to do it. Um, So we will read in just a moment, starting in verse 1 of chapter 15 down through verse 21. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing up here. I'm not seeing the right screen, but uh, it's up there. It's up here. Hey, we're good to go. Cool. And I'm old school enough. I have written notes just in case I get lost. I need to find my way through here. So... Um, why don't we stand, as we ha- like to do here at, at Sozo, in uh, uh, a simple way of honoring the Scripture, standing as we read it. You can follow along. I will read out loud here uh, verses 1 through 21. You will notice probably that it will sound a little bit different than yours. Uh, Mark has the best translation. I have the next best translation. Uh, I have... I've been reading uh, for some time out of the Holman Christian Standard Bible uh, only because I got used to it. Now they've upgraded it, and it's the Christian Standard Bible. And, and uh, so maybe you're looking at the uh, ESV. That's fine. It'll sound pretty close, but not exactly. Join me as we read. You can follow up there if you'd like, or you can just read along with your own Bible. Starting in verse 1 of Acts 15. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers. 
And they were teaching this, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Can you imagine what kind of a shock that was to these new believers? Paul was there preaching and Barnabas, and they were shocked. But after Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, they arranged for Paul and Barnabas and some of the others to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem concerning this controversy. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, explaining in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they created great joy among all of the, belie- all the brothers. Verse 4, when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers, this is interesting now, some of the believers from the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is still necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Then the apostles and elders assembled to consider this matter. I would hope so. After there was much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them by giving the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Why then are you testing God by putting on the disciples' necks a yoke that neither our forefathers nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. Then the whole assembly fell silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describing all the signs and wonders that God had done among them or through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responded, Brothers, listen to me, he said. Simeon has, or Simon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree to this. As it is written, after these things I will return and I will build, I will rebuild David's tent, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up again so that those who have left are left of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who were called by my name, says the Lord who does these things, which has been known from long ago. Therefore, James says, it's my judgment that we should not cause difficulties for those who turn to God from the Gentiles, but instead we should simply write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that's been strangled, and from eating blood. For since ancient times, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, and he is read aloud in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Let's pray. Father, we ask you, by the Holy Spirit, to take truth out of this passage and make it real to us. It takes more than just simply reading the Bible. It takes the Holy Spirit, it takes your touch to illuminate the Bible as we read it, as we ponder it, as we study it. And so we ask 
that you would quicken our minds to comprehend. I pray you'll help me to be clear. And I pray that between my clarity and the openness of all of our hearts, you'll be able to speak through this passage and other scripture passages today. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. You can greet someone if you'd like to as you're seated. like to thank our technicians for coming down during our prayer time and setting up my machine here that somehow hadn't caught up. Appreciate that. By the way, for those of you that may not know, uh, my involvement here at uh, Sozo is actually a family affair. I introduced my wife uh, earlier. Uh, my daughter was on the keyboards today, and my son is helping up there in the back. He just saved my tush by uh, coming down and helping me with my technology here, but he's been helping up there as well. And then, of course, another daughter with our wonderful two grandkids and wonderful son-in-law. They're not here today, I don't think. Oh, they are? Oh, my gosh. Anyway, there's the, there's the family affair. Then we have a, uh, my oldest son is in Seattle, but uh, he still likes to come here and visit. Well, here's what we're going to look at today. Mark, uh, Pastor Mark has been doing such a really, just an awesome job uh, dealing with the 12th chapter of John and, and, and taking the subject of worship and intimacy uh, really to a pretty high level when it comes to instruction and helping us understand the privilege it is to actually experience personally the presence of Jesus. And as he's been teaching this and, and preaching from week to week, I felt like actually a couple of months ago that uh, there might be a time for me to revisit a topic that's been near and dear to my heart. Maybe it'll be new to you. Maybe it won't. Some of you that have been around here uh, sometime, maybe this won't be uh, all that new. Uh, but I hope it is kind of a new way of seeing some things today uh, because it is my conviction that what we just read in terms of James' conclusion, what he determines is the result of all of this debate that we just read about where genuine Christians, are tr they're trying to force them back under the law and under circumcision and under the... the uh, uh, just the, the almost impossibility of keeping the law. And his conclusion is, the prophets actually gave us a new pattern. The prophets actually spoke something new about the way the church should look, the way the church should operate, the way you and I as Christians should operate. And we're going to look at that, and just as we go through here, look at the Old Testament picture of what really is intended for you and I today as Christians. And so I've chosen this wonderfully powerful um, title, Acting Like Tent People, or basically looking at ta the, the 
tabernacle of David or David's tabernacle today. When you look at the Old Testament, you find pretty quickly that a lot of the religious activity for the Israelites was centered around certain uh, worship locations and worship experiences. And three of those I'm going to contrast today specifically so we can center in on one of them, which is the tabernacle of David. And what you see on that picture there, of course, is an artist's rendition of the Ark of the Covenant, which was the center of all of Israel's religious celebration. Because the Ark for Israel represented the actual physical, not just conceptual, but, but a physical presence of God in the earth physical location. They saw smoke and they saw fire. And at times they actually heard the voice of God out of those elements speak to them. In fact, uh, Mark pointed out very well not too long ago that, that God spoke to them and scared them half to death. They didn't want to hear God's voice anymore. They said, Moses, why don't you go talk to God? It sounds to me like he might be mad at us. So, there was real-life, personal, physical contact with God all through the Old Testament. And, and those centers of worship uh, were, one, the tabernacle of Moses, which we see described over and over again in the book of Exodus, chapter after chapter of the plans being laid out and chapter after chapter of the tabernacle actually being built and finally it's dedicated uh, and then later on, we see uh, David's son Solomon. He uh, is given the task of building his own temple. Uh, and what he basically did was he took the tabernacle of Moses, and we'll be seeing some pictures in just a minute. But he took the tabernacle of Moses and he supersized it. And so in the tabernacle of Moses, you had ones and basic altar of sacrifice. In Solomon's temple, the altar of sacrifice was so big, they had to have um, a concrete walkway up to the top of it. And in ta the tabernacle of Moses, maybe four or five priests could stand around the sacrifice and deal with sacrifices. In Solomon's temple, you could have 20 or 25 priests standing around the top Maybe I should give you some pictures here, and then we'll have to go back. This is an artist's rendition of the Tabernacle of Moses. And you see the, the tent. Inside that tent, there's actually two rooms, and the Ark of the Covenant would be right underneath that second cloud. The first area is smoke from the burnt sacrifices, but underneath that cloud of pillar, and sometimes you'll see this rendition at night where the pillar is fire, can you imagine being the Israelites and setting up your tent and having dinner and all of a sudden it's twilight and darkness falls and your little daughter or son run to their door and, Daddy, Daddy, God is here. We can see, the, we can see God. 
And then you go to your tent opening, and sure enough, there's this huge pillar of fire over the tabernacle. That was regular occurrence for the Israelites. Even though they rebelled and God sent them through the wilderness for 40 years, they experienced this every single day. Daytime smoke, nighttime fire. But you see this, this layout, altar, little labor there in the middle to wash your hands. Maybe a couple of priests could be around that to wash blood off before they took the blood into the other uh, chambers. In Solomon's temple, the labor was big enough that they actually had to have small, little containers to bring up underneath these uh, graven oxen because out of their mouth, the water would flow and they would fill up smaller, little lavers. In fact, there was probably 20 of them along the side of the temple. And you can see the altar, huge. So, same floor plan, same concept. Mo the tabernacle of Moses is supersized in, the Solomon's, in Solomon's temple. But I find it really interesting when we get to the argument in, in chapter 15 of Acts where there could have been a decision to actually make Christians maintain their law commitment or their circumcision commitment. If you look at the book of Acts, and it's a great study to go through the book of Acts and actually look at the key decisions and experiences that were made that just kept turning the church into a full new covenant expression. This is one of them. If they had not had this council, if they had not decided that only a few simple common sense rules would be given to the Gentiles, all of us as New Testament believers would be required to maintain the law. And Peter said, even the Jewish people couldn't do it. It was a burden to all of us. Why are you putting this on the Gentiles who have become believers? And so James says, we can't do that. What we've seen happen with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on us, and now the outpouring of the Holy Spirit's also happened to the Gentiles, and Peter has talked about it, and now Paul and Barnabas has gone up, they've gone up to Antioch, and the Spirit's been poured out there, and there's thousands of people coming to faith in Christ that have never been circumcised and never kept the law. Uh, if we put them back under that, we're doing them a disservice, and we are testing God, actually, is what he says. And then he says this, and actually, the prophets from the Old Testament prove this point. They actually state that what's happening with the Gentiles is, in fact, the new pattern that God would like to establish for the church to operate. And he says, here's the prophecy I want you to, to read or listen to out of Amos chapter 9. You could mark this in your notes. Well, let me do this. Here is what, here's the picture of the floor plan for what the church should look like today. And I thought, 
as I was studying this. You know, the American way to approach this would have been to take the supersized. Let's have a huge temple. Let's have all kinds of ritual. Let's make this thing a grandiose, incredible experience for everyone. And James says, no, actually the way it's going to work here is the prophet said that God would rebuild, rebuild the tabernacle of Moses? No. Solomon's temple? No. The simple tent that David built for the Ark of the Covenant. At this point, in terms of the history of the book of Acts, we're about 48 to 50 A.D., some 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And the gospel has been spreading and spreading. And there was always this contention, should the should those that are coming to faith maintain this kind of Jewish feel to their life and their religious experience, circumcisions, elements of the law? And there was this strong party, as you can tell but from the, from the passage, this strong party representation that wanted to force everyone to be kind of Christian Jewish practitioners in terms of religious experience. And so you have this debate. First of all, it's just with inclusion of circumcision. Then you come down, you know, to verses seven, four and seven. Uh, they want to add circumcision and the law. And then you have Peter's presentation, and James gives us the answer, and he says it's the tent of David. And Amos predicted this. And there's actually another verse that I thought was interesting. Uh, I don't have it on the screen, I don't think. But uh, if you mark in your notes, um, here it is, Isaiah 16 and verse 5. This was amazing to me. I had all my years of studying this. There's actually a passage in, Acts, in, in Isaiah 16, verse 5, that says this in terms of prediction. Then, in the tent of David's, a throne will be established. And it will be established by faithful love. And a judge who seeks what is right and is quick to execute justice will sit on that throne forever. So Amos says the day will come when God will restore the tabernacle of David. The simple tent. And all that will be in that tent is the Ark of the Covenant. The only thing that Israel will have to deal with will be the personal presence of God on a daily basis. Ritual will be in the background and blood sacrifice will be in the background and all of that will be in the background. What will be in the forefront every single day under the leadership of King David will be his fascination with the presence of Jesus, well, the presence of God, the presence that he saw every day. For us, it's the presence of Jesus. That simple little tent becomes the pattern. And from this point, Acts chapter 15 on, 
Only a few common sense requirements were given to the Gentiles. You know, common sense not to commit adultery. Common sense to be careful about your eating habits and all of that. But the primary emphasis was on what this tabernacle of David represented to the everyday Christian who called themselves Christians from that point on. And I want to suggest to you, and we're going to look at these as we go through here quickly, that the pattern of the tabernacle of David is expressed in a lot of ways, but I'm going to choose four that I think are the significant ways in which this Old Testament picture establishes a new pattern for us as Christians to operate. And you see those four words, four distinct ways. The tabernacle of David was a tabernacle of free access. We're going to look at that in a minute. It was also a place of spiritual worship. David was doing things in the Old Testament in front of that ark that we're doing today in our worship service. And he was calling that an acceptable sacrifice to God. Even though there were still blood sacrifices going on in Shiloh, the temple or the tabernacle of Moses was still in operation without the ark. It was in front of David and all of his singers and all of his dancers and all of his musicians were there. And they were constantly, day in and day out. Actually, David was king for 40 years. And so for 40 years, the emphasis was on this little tent, this simple little tent with the glory of God in it every single day. And then the idea of heart, rather than external compliance, New Testament, New Covenant, um, Christianity is all about your heart. It's all about your inner, the inner workings of your inner motives. It's not about outward, external compliance. You can comply outwardly and be far from God inwardly. And so the, the whole emphasis for the tabernacle of, Mo, or the tabernacle of David was heart. David had a heart after God. In fact, it says he had a heart after God's own heart. And so when the Israelites would watch the king, and they could see him now um, on a regular basis, he would come and spend time sitting around the ark, experiencing somehow the presence of God. I don't know what actually transpired you know, was there some kind of energy force going on? Was there a sound? I don't, probably not. There's no evidence that there was a cloud or fire over that tent. But he practiced continually a heart connection with the presence of God. And then lastly, of course, just the presence itself. So let's Let's go on our quick journey and just touch on these areas. I wanted to point out to you that under both the tabernacle of Moses and the tabernacle or the, the, the temple of Solomon, three things 
were always emphasized. They were glaring when you came around those two um, uh, worship centers. One was blood. There's blood everywhere. You brought your sacrifice, they asked, your animal, you brought it alive, they killed it in front of you, and then they took some of the blood and, and uh, sprinkled it on things, and they, they roasted some of the meat in the sacrifice to consume it before God, and some of it was saved for the priest. And every single day when you hung around the tabernacle of Moses, you saw blood everywhere. During David's reign... That was on the back burner. What he saw and what he exercised was this connection with the presence of God. Also, Moses' uh, tabernacle and also the Temple of Solomon, there was very strict restrictions on access. In fact, as a commoner, you could not go in to those, those uh, temples, the tabernacle or the temple, and have any connection, any contact with the presence of God. Nothing. The priest did that for you. Doesn't that sound like some religious societies we are dealing with even today? The priest does all of that for you. The Bible says in the New Testament that we are a royal priesthood. We can do that for ourselves. And then also there was very strict requirements on the kind of sacrifices that you brought kind of animals. I mean, there were sin offerings, and there were trespass offerings, and there were peace offerings, and there were offerings for the new moon and the old moon and whatever moon you had. And every time you had a celebration or a change in the season, you had sacrifices, and they had very strict requirements on how they were brought and what you would do. And, and, and depending on your social structure, how much you had um, in terms of finances, whether you could afford a cow or maybe only a dove, you had to bring something that would relate to you to bring it to the temple all the time. Now, Solomon did one thing, I think probably to honor his father David. He did allow a crew of worshipers to be part of the temple experience. And I find it so interesting because Solomon eventually fell into apostasy and rejected God and was worshiping false gods, even though he was maintaining the outward experience or outward look of some kind of religious dedication to Jehovah. But David's tabernacle had none of that. What David did was he took the priesthood and he found those who were worshipers, those who could sing, those who could play instruments, and he organized them so that on a regular day in the front of this ark, the priesthood was offering spiritual sacrifices and offerings of praise and worship and thanksgiving and dancing and clapping, and they would, they would sing spontaneously, and David would write psalms and then hand it off to Asaph, and they would take it over, and they would put it to music, and the next morning, David would come out, and he would sit down under the edge of the tent with the ark right there and listen to his new psalm sung by the worship singers. That's literally what happened. In fact, most of your psalms are songbooks for uh, David's worshipers, singers. 
2 Samuel chapter 7 uh, describes David sitting in the Lord's presence. 1 Chronicles 17 and 1 says that the ark was actually tucked under curtains. So there was these wonderful little kind of sheer curtains apparently that protected it. And then, we'll get to that in a little bit. When David brought the ark, he did it the wrong way the first time. Remember that? Mark talked about it here a few weeks ago. They put it on a cart, cost someone their life, and then he decided to go back and read the manual. Let's, let's check this out. Let's read some of the instructions. What does it really say uh, when it, when, back in Exodus about transporting the ark? And they realized that the ark was designed to rest on the shoulders of the priesthood. And in fact, when the ark was stationary, it was commanded that you not take the poles out because it was gonna, if you're going to move it, it has to be on the shoulders of the priests. And I find that really interesting. We're going to look at that a little closer in a little bit because you and I, as royal priesthood, because of this pattern of the tabernacle of David... We have the privilege of actually carrying the weight of the personal presence of God on our lives. I don't see poles and staves on your shoulders, but if you could pull back that divide between the eternal and the natural, you probably could see them because they are very real. They are, you're, you're carrying the presence of God. And that was the pattern that changed. Circumcision would not do it for you. Keeping the law would not do it for you. Simple repentance, embracing Jesus, ushered you in right in front of the ark. Let's, uh, all right, let's go. Let me go. Let's get these pictures one more time to kind of get in our mind. Let's talk about access. We're going to simply just touch on access and worship, heart, presence, and then we will bring this thing to a close. As, as Mark has said periodically, we'll bring this plane into a, for a landing. And if you're watching, Mark, I borrowed it from you. So, Rather than read a lot of other scriptures, and there are really so many Old and New Testament scriptures that describe this wonderful free access we have into the presence of God. But let me just concentrate on Acts 15, about 7 through 11, all right? You um, follow along on our list up there, and then if you have your Bibles open, we'll just notate a couple of these things. Notice in verse 7, Peter and James and Barnabas are making this argument. Number one, they say, God has made a choice among you. And they're basically saying, don't talk to us, talk to God. It was his decision. 
Those who wanted circumcision in the law, you know, you can, we can debate this forever, but by personal practice, we have watched God make a choice to include the Gentiles in this thing called salvation through grace, by faith, by faith, through grace. And it wasn't even our idea. God made the choice. Then he says in verse 8, he says, And God, who knows the heart. He was watching their heart. He wasn't examining their religious practice. He wasn't determining who was qualified and not qualified by how many times they went to their, the temple or to the synagogue or, or to whatever religious uh, center of celebration they were part of. He was looking at their heart when he saw Cornelius and others. God who knows the heart. And number three, God confirmed with them the same way he did with us by giving them the Holy Spirit. This is, what they argue, this is how they're building the argument. God's idea, God, God was watching their heart. It wasn't about externals, it was about internals. And then God did the same thing for them, he did for us. You guys, just talking to these Jewish priests or, or not sure what you'd call them, but they that wanted to adhere, you know, still to, to the ritual and so on. He was basically saying, do you remember the excitement of being filled with the Holy Spirit yourself? Yeah, that was so great. Well, he did the same thing for the Gentiles and required nothing of them for that to happen. So why are you testing God, he says. It was God's idea. He knew their heart. He gave them the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 9. And he made no distinction. He's making no distinction between us and them. In the Jewish mind, it was always us versus everybody else. You were either a Jew or you were a Gentile. And every other nationality, every other person in the entire world were under that, that qualification as a Gentile. You're either one or the other. And even the early apostles interpreted the experience they were having with Jesus and the Holy Spirit as being something that God wanted to do for all the Jews around the world. So they went out preaching to only the Jews. And then, of course, what happened was a few of them by accident preached to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles started getting excited about Jesus. And then pretty soon, it was out of control, actually. Just the way God wanted it to work. And James says, that's exactly what the prophets prophesied. There would come a day when God would restore the tabernacle of David. Jesus would fulfill all the tabernacle of Moses, all that had to do with sacrifice and blood and requirements. Jesus would take care of that. And then God would pour out his spirit on the church and establish a whole new way of operation. And it has to do with the presence of God on the shoulders of real people. Notice uh, number five, the cleansing was by faith 
not by external compliance, but by faith. In verse 10 and 11, the conclusion was, we're saved through grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way that they are. Now, this was a shock for most very good Orthodox Jewish believers because they had been trained, they had been brought up for centuries to see the difference. And all of a sudden, God is just breaking that thing down. He is crushing it over and over again, pouring out His Spirit on anybody who has a heart to listen. Access. In the tabernacle of David, all about access. Let's talk about worship. We already alluded to this, and we, we could spend a lot of time looking at the scriptures, but it would take a lot of time uh, when you would see how David organized his offerings and his sacrifices. They were all spiritual in nature. They were all sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving and worship and adoration and glory and obedience and, and uh, experiencing the presence of God on a daily basis. And, and there was this rich, um, spontaneous interaction with the, in proximity with, with the presence of God on a on a daily basis. And it looks from what we can tell from history that he placed it so that Israel could look up at Mount Zion and see the ark and hear all of the worship going on. And he could look down from his little palace area and look right into the ark or at the ark under this tent while he's enjoying everyone expressing their worship and praise to God. And then he spent time there. In fact, you remember the very tragic story of David's disobedience and his adultery with Bathsheba, and eventually his firstborn dies. Where do you think he goes? He crowds in next to the presence of God and intercedes. And of course, God had other plans. There was judgment for part of that. But David's tabernacle was the central religious spiritual experience for David all of his days. There was organized daily worship, which points to the fact that that the New Testament says we're called to be living sacrifices. Romans 12 and verse 1 says, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. They presented bodies as a dead sacrifice. Now we are to be dedicating or offering our bodies as living sacrifices. They presented blood. Jesus did that. Now we present our heart in worship, adoration, thanksgiving. 
humility, dependence. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, you see it there. Coming to him, Peter writes, as a, as a living stone, he was obviously the living stone rejected by men and chosen and valuable to God. You yourselves are coming as living stones and are being built into a spiritual house for a, for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then if you look at, um, I believe it's, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, that's where Peter says, you are actually a royal priesthood. They were Levitical priests. You are royal priests. You're connected to the king himself. Thirdly here, before I trip on my stave, heart. This characterized the way David interacted with the ark and with the presence of God continually. And this is the pattern. This becomes the New Testament pattern for all of the church to operate. It's all about heart. Yes, there's important things to do and not do, but at the center of all of this, it's about heart. Inward work of the Holy Spirit, not outward conformity. Obedience from an inward surrender. It's all about love, Jesus said. If you're going to take the, the entirety of the law and summarize it, you can summarize it by saying two things. Love God and love your neighbor. And I have a couple scriptures there. You can write those down. But let me just read these. I find them fascinating. Romans 2.27 says this, For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly because of circumcision, but true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly because circumcision is of the heart. They wanted external and James was saying, well, the tabernacle of David says it's internal. Sorry, guys. It's all about the condition of your heart. Romans chapter 7 and verse 6 says this, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions operated through the law in every part of us and bore fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in a new way of the Spirit and not under the old way of the letter. Tabernacle of David. Access, worship, heart. And then we'll finish up with this. Presence. I find it fascinating when I study these words in the Old Testament. The word that is over and over again used, I know Mark prefers the word proximity, and I'll get to that at the end. But I like the word presence, and the reason I like the word presence is because it comes from a Hebrew word that means face. So when you read uh, of Abraham or, I, or, or Esau, I'm not Esau, um, 
um, Jacob wrestling with God, and it says, you know, that they, he wrestled in the, in the presence of God. Literally, he's face to face. And that's what David actually believed when he was spending time in front of the ark and the presence was there. He, I don't know whether he saw God face to face, probably if he had, he would have described it, probably didn't, but that's how he felt, that it was face to face to face to face. And that's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You look at my face, you've seen the the Father. Exodus chapter 13 or 33, we won't go there. You can mark it in your notes. Um, Very famous passage. Israel in chapter 32 has just blown it big time. They have made a golden calf and they have worshipped this golden calf while Moses is up on the mountain. He comes down and God is fit to be tied. In fact, he says to Moses... You guys can go on up. I'll, um, I'll assign an angel to lead you. And he'll make sure that you get your bread and honey and all that stuff when you go in the promised land. But I'm not going with you. You stiff-necked people, my translation says. You stubborn, stiff-necked people. I'm not going. Well, then Moses jumps in and says, hold it. Thanks for the angel. Appreciate the promise to take care of us. But if your present doesn't go, I'm not going. That's my paraphrase. In fact, when um, this is a little private, but when my wife and I were married, we felt like God gave us that verse as a life verse for our married life. And I have it engraved inside my ring, actually, this passage where God says, okay, I guess I will go. I'll lead you. And Moses responds and says, that's good, because if you don't lead us, I'm not going. Thanks for the angel. That's nice, but there's nothing like your presence. There's nothing like you leading us. And then he says, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, You might want to actually turn to this. Exodus 33. I won't turn. I've got it in my notes, but you can turn there. And this is what, how the the communication interchange takes place. Verse 14. Then God um, replies, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses, calm down. He's saying, I'm going to go with you. Then verse 15, Moses says, if your present doesn't go, don't make us go. I'm not going. And then look at verse 16. Moses is reasoning in this. And this really speaks to me about the tabernacle of David and the, the New Testament pattern. He says this, how will it be known that I and your people have found favor in your sight unless you go with us? If you send us with an angel, people will say, yeah, but that doesn't say much about how much God loves you if he's not even willing to lead you. So Moses says, if we're going to go, you have to lead us. 
Because when you lead us, it will say to the entire world, this God, this Jehovah God loves this people. He's willing to lead them personally himself. Again, that's kind of my paraphrase, but that's what verses 16 and 17 says. How will it be known that you and, or I and this people have found favor unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by this. What is this? This, your presence leading us among all the other people on the face of the earth. I thought about that this week. What distinguishes me from the people around me that are not Christians? The fact that I go to church? The fact that I read my Bible? The fact that I don't swear or I don't do certain things? Well, if we take this literally and bring it into a tabernacle of David expression, what really should be that marked that marks your the difference in your life and my life is the fact that God is leading me. God lives with me. Jesus indwells me by the Holy Spirit. And all the rest of it is just so much fluff. Sometimes you can't get to church. What happens then? Where's the presence of God? Oh, no, it's in you. How will they know that we've found favor unless you lead us personally? Look at um, that next to the last bullet point there. I was thinking about that, and we'll, we're working to some a closure here. All the ways that we uh, like to... Um, pigeonhole the presence of God. Many times it's all about location. I can, if I can just get to church, they'll have a great worship service, and I'll experience God. And then you have a flat tire and you can't get to church. Or you have a wife of Fight with your wife and she goes in and you sit in the car and fume or whatever. We really, as kind of still connected to this measurable natural world, like locations to be the place where we're, the, the presence of God is associated. So uh, in my day, you know, we went to church camps. We went to Bible camps. And man, you waited all year to go to Bible camp because you go to Bible camp and man, you would hear great speakers. The worship would be great. I'll never forget some of the first experiences I had going to uh, huge Bible camps on the west side of the state, in Washington state, where 2,000 people are in this open tabernacle and, and you would you could hear them singing, you know, miles away, and they didn't even have instruments all the time. They would just sing a cappella. I'll never forget them singing a beautiful song called Simple Hallelujah. Some of you old folks know this. Hallelujah. Just real simple. I remember almost being moved to tears as I'm approaching the tabernacle, and they're singing this simple song with just one word. And God met me there. And if you're not careful, 
You think that's the only place God meets you is there. But it's not there. It's here. What about um, occasions? You know, we have an Easter holiday coming up, and we'll have a special Easter service, and we'll have a special uh, Good Friday service for the first time. Or tonight, I'll get the ad- advertisement in. Tonight we have worship at 6 o'clock. Please come back and join us for worship. So we think of the occasions. And so if I can get there, oh, I can experience this tabernacle of David, presence of God. And then something happens, we can't get there. We bear the presence. Sometimes we associate organizations. I mean, there was a lot of years when I thought disassociating with the organizations was the place where the Holy Spirit really was. You know, the independent churches who were Pentecostal, not the dependent churches who were Pentecostal. How wrong I was. Because I was associating somehow the presence of God with an organization or an institution, or we could go on, education. I mean, I've got an education. I've got a master's degree. I've got a seminary degree. But I'll tell you what, God has never anointed my degree. He never has. I wish he would. I wish at times I could just stand up and talk about some of the things I learned at seminary, but he doesn't do that. If he anoints anything, he anoints me. Sometimes you wonder, but that's how it works. And the tabernacle of David is a presence-driven experience, a a presence-driven reality. It should mark the way the New Testament church operates all the time. Somewhere I lost my... Oh, there we are. Thank you. I'm not being emotional. I just have a runny nose for some reason, and that's the way it works around our house, right? We're almost going to close here. Uh, the last thing I wanted just to point out was, um, as good Pentecostals, Charismatics, we, you know, we refer to Acts chapter 2, the, ba- the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, many times. But something caught my attention this week as I was thinking about the presence of God as, as it's carried by the priests on the shoulder and nowhere else, not allowed to be carried any other way. And if you read that passage, Acts chapter 2, verse 3, it says that there was a sound of a mighty wind that filled the room, and then there were these flames of fire. And the writer specifically says each cloven tongue, these little fl- flickering flames, settled or rested on each of the 120 people in the room. Just quietly, simply, just kind of came to rest on each one. And I thought, I think I see a parallel there. The Ark of the Covenant carried by priests who let the weight rest on their shoulders. And the coming of the Holy Spirit was characterized by flames of fire. They were not consumed. They could have been. God could have said, 
How's that for a baptism, folks? Oh, my gosh, no hair, nothing. All right, good. But the fire appears along with the sound of the wind and the flickering flames just simply settle. The Greek actually implies taking up residence. It's rested on each one. Now, as we close, let me take each of these four areas and just give you a couple of things to ponder. Living like tent people for me means this, in terms of access, that I'm living with the gospel door always open. It doesn't matter who I'm talking with, who I'm around, whether I like him or I don't like him, whether he believes anything close to what I believe or not. It doesn't matter what culture he's from. It doesn't matter what color his skin is. It doesn't even matter whether he likes me very much or not. If I'm going to be a tabernacle of David believer, then I must conduct my life always with the gospel door open. How about worship? To me, it means making everything that I do and say an offering to Jesus. The way I talk to my family, the way I interact with people, the things I do, the things I say, at the end of the day, would Jesus consider it an acceptable offering? Or would he say, let's start over on that one, please. That's not very acceptable. That's what I think worship in the tabernacle of David's all about. Everything I do is an offering. And then the heart, serving Jesus with authentic affection, that's, that's a tough one sometimes. It's really easy to relate to Jesus ritually, go through the motions and learn to do certain things. But to break through that and actually have some kind of real affection, real personal affection. You, you just really feel emotional about Jesus. Now, it's not all about emotion. Please, we know that. But a lot of it is because it's a real relationship. It's not just a religious activity. It's a real relationship, serving him with authentic heart affection. And lastly, and Mark will appreciate this, presence, making our walk with Jesus all about proximity. You're welcome, Mark. You're welcome. <laughs> all about proximity. We'll have the worship team come back and get in their spot. Hopefully, if you were familiar with the Tabernacle of David at all, this has been a good refresher. But maybe it's been something new, a kind of a new way of seeing it. In my way, it is the way you have to see it. Because James basically said, Amos prophesied it, and now we see God establishing it from here on out. A walk with Jesus characterized by this intimacy with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together.